Thank you, worship team. Dan, last week, I appreciated his message um, as he uh, talked about the event Sunday um, that we even think about today, uh, triumphal entry. Um, Dan shared uh, some of the events around that and some of the, the parables Jesus taught. And in uh, and, and that Sunday, the triumphal entry uh, began almost a cadence. You can almost hear it leading up to Friday in the cross. And so as we considered last week some of the things that happened Sunday and even Monday, um, we're going to look at the midweek. There's some things that we kind of tend to go from Sunday to Friday and forget that in the middle there's some pretty significant things that happen. And, uh, and I really want us to zoom in on this. Je- Dan talked about the fact that Jesus is the cornerstone of prophecy. He's a tested stone. He's a sure stone. Our faith is built upon ask, uh, on that. Dan asked the question, where's your hope? What's your hope set on? Is it set on Christ? Is it set on the cornerstone? We turn to Mark 14 and we see a picture of three different characters. So close to Jesus. And yet they're really in three different places in their life. And I find it significant that these accounts are midweek, Wednesday, right right in the middle. And and the zoom lens that God wanted us to see was this encounter, these encounters. And so if you turn to Mark 14, before we do anything more, though, we really need to, to pray. And let's do that. Father, I... Thank you for the privilege we have to gather. Lord, to worship you. What a privilege. That, Lord, you would accept from our lips words of praise, songs of praise. From hearts even Monday to Saturday that were divided and maybe distracted. And even now, sit here fighting very hard to stay engaged. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would take these words, help us to see them, to learn, to apply them. And for the sake and the glory of Jesus, might this be done. Amen. In Mark 14, verses 1 through 2, we kind of have this this atmosphere that's surrounding Jesus at this time. It says, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. The chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and to kill him. They were saying, Not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. Very interesting, the, the tension. Again, this is Wednesday. The events we're talking about are Wednesday and Thursday. Midweek, Jesus came in Sunday. Crowds lined the roads, Hosanna, which was both a request and a prayer. Save us. Save us. 
Hosanna, a God who saves. And so as praise and prayers lined those roads as the Savior came into Jerusalem, there was a sense of not only movement, but an atmosphere began to develop. In some cases, it was, it was one of just sheer joy. As some recognized who Jesus was, but for many, there were many questions, much confusion. But for some, in this case, we read in verse 1 through 2, the scribes, there was anger, disdain. They wanted to kill Jesus. And so this whole atmosphere, the movement of Jesus, I find very unique too. You see, he comes to Jerusalem, then he goes back to Bethany. And then he'll come to Jerusalem and go back to Bethany. And in this week, there's movement that takes place that Jesus does very intentionally. And, and God has allowed us in his word to see some of that. It's the feast of the Passover that's referenced. The, the feast of unleavened bread, one of Israel's great yearly feast that commemorated the deliverance from Egypt. It was followed immediately by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It began on the evening of Passover and lasted seven days. And there's a distinct difference between the religious leaders, again, and the general population and their attitude towards Christ. These, those in the crowd were not afraid to proclaim Hosanna, but these chief scribes and priests and religious leaders. They're certainly not afraid to murder the Son of God. Matter of fact, they believe they must do it for political reasons and that it was a politically wise move. And as we read this account in, John, in Mark 14, look what happens. This is a remarkable event. While he was in Bethany, so he's come from Jerusalem back to Bethany, which is two miles away, He's in the home of Simon the leper, and he's reclining at the table. There came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial, poured over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. For truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be spoken of it in memory of her. We have a woman who comes in the company of Jesus. He's reclining, the disciples are there, and she enters as a breach of etiquette for sure. And she comes in the presence of Jesus, in the company of Jesus, and we're told a couple things. One, it's in the home of Simon. We're told his name, Simon the leper. Obviously, not the leper anymore, or he wouldn't have had all these people over to his house this is obviously somebody Jesus healed. He's a very grateful man. He's hosting, at least it appears this is the man who's hosting this particular gathering of people. Now, again, this is having left the temple. 
He gave the great Olivet Discourse to those who were there. He returns to Bethany, and this is what he comes to. This, this gathering, and this woman enters it. Now, try to picture this moment. It's not just that she entered this gathering. She walks up to Jesus, and she takes this costly perfume, breaks the vial, pours it over his head. Think about it. You're there. Does that, wouldn't you all of a sudden become really quiet? Like, uh-oh, right? That sense of, what, what, what is she doing? And if I'm a disciple there, maybe I'm a little afraid. I mean, after all, the religious teachers have been kind of after him. So maybe there's that sense of, whoa, we better get her out of here. What's she doing? But it's almost like they're stunned at first. What's going on here? And the text is really clear because they become very indignant. They remark to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? In the John account, we recognize that Judas is the one who instigated this discussion. He's the one who, who kind of instigated the conversation and there, or at least the focus that this was a huge waste of money. They could have done something with it. Now, as we read these words, we don't necessarily realize the extent of this extravagance. In purchasing power, it's equivalent to 300 days for a rural worker of the, the cost of this perfume, of this nard. And Jesus calls this good deed, a good deed. The, the words Jesus uses here have this idea of beautiful. It's more than just, a, at first we read it and think, ah, oh, that's a good thing to do, you threw a buck. No, it, it's, it's more than that. It's more extravagant than, it's actually a beautiful thing she's done. Well, not to the, those who are in attendance, to them it's a waste. I thought for a second, why would Jesus call this particular thing she did beautiful? Well, there's some reasons I think that emerge. One is Jesus is very aware of her loving motive. And he calls it beautiful. You see, she placed Jesus before anything else. There's nothing in that room, in that gathering, that was her focus but Christ. She didn't let any other distraction or any other pressure or any of the, the, the thoughts that others might have had. Her focus was on Jesus. She placed him before anything else. But they call it a waste. What's the definition of waste? Waste means you give something too much for something too little, right? You give something too much for something too little. You spent a lot of money for that toy. That's a waste of your money. You gave so much for something so little. It's a waste. And that's what they're saying. This is a waste of your money. Lady, you're giving too much for something that's too little. Think about it. Let that sink in. And they call it a waste. You see, human reasoning said this is just too much, it's too extravagant. Thus the disciples complain. Mary's actions, from their perspective, are wasteful. Their attitude appears nice because, hey, we should give this to the poor. But the use of what she's done is considered wasteful. I, I thought a little bit about the gospel because doesn't the gospel issue forth a person who now wastes himself on Christ, right? In the world's perspective, the unsaved, a 
a Christian is wasting his life by trying to serve Christ and not pursue a career or not try to get a bigger portfolio. Instead, we settle often, we're told. We spend an inordinate time worshiping God and and, and serving God. And from the world's perspective, we're wasting our life from the world's perspective. But to Jesus, with that total abandonment, he says, no, that's a beautiful life. That's the life that pleases him. You see, the Lord's affirmation of Mary for putting him above all else tells us that God looks for and works in us to create this lavish, contemplative, devotional life in which we love Christ so much that we pour ourselves out for him and for others. Why else was this act beautiful? Well, it not only put Christ first, but it was a total abandonment. It was a complete sacrifice. It was an adequate expression for a life which had been redeemed by God. We must ask, is my devotion to Christ costing me anything? I mean, is my devotion, am I pouring my life out in a devotion to Christ? You see, it's beautiful when we follow Christ with an extravagant heart. It seems also another reason he called it beautiful was it affirmed the scope of her worship. He says, she has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for the burial. It's not contained to her understanding of Jesus' life. I mean, it's not like she came in the room and said, okay, I know Jesus is about to be crucified in a couple days. Three days later, I know he's going to rise from the dead and he's going to be coming back. And she didn't understand all that. So when she came and poured out her love, it wasn't because of an agenda. There was no agenda. She just came and loved him. You see, she was in the company of Jesus, and she was loving. She was worshiping. That's what she was doing. And her story, we're told in verse 9, is a testimony to what happens to a life that's touched by the Savior. Because Jesus is the cornerstone, He is worthy of our extravagant devotion. Now the disciples characteristically passed this all off. But Mary, she focused on Christ. She did what she could. It really explains the passion of her devotion. Savior came to earth. If you look at the the story of redemption through the Bible and actually even look at this story, you see the Savior came to earth to break an alabaster jar for humanity. And by that we're able to be redeemed. She anointed him by breaking one for him. A complete love, a complete sacrifice was the only and is the only adequate expression of the life of a redeemed child of God. She's in the company of Jesus, in the presence of Jesus. She was loving. But perfume was not the only thing in the air that day. So was betrayal. Because the scriptures give us a zoom lens on someone else who was in the company of Jesus. He wasn't loving. He was lost. Same location. Judas is reclining at the table. They're in the same room, same gathering, both in the company of Jesus, but they could not be farther apart. Judas has an opposite heart of the woman. 
He's associated. He's close. He's in the company, but he's lost. Matter of fact, as I read through this account over and over, it really struck me that at least three times the text references the fact that Judas was with the 12. Judas was with the 12. Judas was part of the 12. It's like the scriptures are trying to to accentuate and point out to us that he was in the company of Jesus. He was part of the group. He was there. It seems unbelievable that one could be immersed in such fellowship and yet living out such great evil. But really, this also has a contemporary ring to it. Some years ago, William Matrex was called the evangelical bank robber. He was described in the Chicago Tribune. He had killed two FBI agents before he himself was gunned down. And though involved in numerous robberies, he maintained an image of a born-again Christian family man who gave testimonies in his church, was even featured in a magazine as an upstanding Christian example. In the company of Jesus, close to the things of God, but lost. That's the picture we have of Judas. You see, you can name the name of Jesus and call yourself a Christian. You can say, I'm a follower of Christ. You can hang around the things of God, and you know you could still be lost. That was Judas. There's more insight from some cross-references. Matthew 26, 14 to 16 says Judas is bargaining. He's preparing to betray. And so as we look at these verses, look at verses 17 through 21. When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. One who's eating with me. He began to be grieved And to say to him one by one, surely not I. He said to him, it is one of the twelve. One who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And then earlier, a couple verses, verses 10 through 11, we get the insight, which kind of leads to that conversation. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Matthew 26, 14 to 16, Judas is bargaining. He's preparing to betray, evaluating what he will get out of it. You see, he's got a calculator in one hand, and he knew the price of everything but the value of nothing. And so as he negotiated with him, they're like, okay, that's enough money. I'm in. I'll betray him. And he began to think of ways. Now Luke 22 gives us even more insight. Luke 22, 3 through 6. We read, And Satan entered in to Judas, who is called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray betray him to them. They were glad, agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. We see Satan's involvement in this. We know Judas consented. It says he consented. He had a choice in the matter. 
But there's an enemy involved in this who is seeking an opportunity, who is looking for a time to nudge, to deceive Judas, to grab a hold of him, to make him a pawn in his plan. And he wanted to do this. Judas wanted to do it apart from the crowd. He, did, he, he didn't want to cause a riot or, or he wanted to be unknown. He wanted to be quiet. He wanted to betray Jesus to sin in the quiet so maybe nobody else would know. But what the other disciples didn't know at this point is there was one among them who was in the company of Jesus. He was lost. He was lost. And Mark 14, 18 there's a shocking statement. We, we fly by it, and if you're familiar with the story, it's tempted to fly by it. As they were reclining at the table and eating. You ever notice when you have people over to eat, there's something about eating together, which is it's actually, it's a little more intimate, isn't it? it it's not, we can hang out and talk in the foyer, or we can run into each other at the marketplace, but when you eat together, it's, it's a little more of an intimate setting. So it's not like Judas was part of a large crowd that kind of had brushes with Jesus. This is an intimate setting that he's a part of. And he makes a statement, who is eating with, with me? The one who's going to betray me is the one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, surely not I. Now the punctuation at the end of verse 19 is important. It's a question mark. Surely not I. I mean, can't be me. And they all said that. None of them even suspected Judas. It's not like one of them, John said, you know what, I got a feeling this might be Judas. I saw some suspicious activity on his part. No. There's like, not me. Surely not I. The punctuation is pretty revealing. It's not a statement, it's a question. They're at a loss as to who or to be frankly honest, they're, they're at a loss to even really what's going on right now. This woman comes in, alabaster jar, and later they're reclining and talking about this betrayal that's going to take place. But we do know from verse 21 that Judas was a responsible, responsible human being who made his own decisions and in so doing fulfilled the word of God. Judas was lost for the same reason millions are lost today. He did not recognize his need for the Savior and repent of his sins. And because of that, he's in hell. It's no laughing matter. It's a serious matter when we talk about this. If you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, if that's something you never do in this lifetime, hell awaits you. Learn from Judas. You can go to church. You can be close to the things of God. You can even sit here this morning and be lost. So which one are you? You marry? Judas? But there's other persons in the presence of Jesus. There's other persons in the company of Jesus here. It's Peter and the disciples. See, the zoom lens of Scripture comes upon them. Look at verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, Where's my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. 
Verse 16, the disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now jump to verse 22. While they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it, gave it to them, and said, take it. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank. And he said to them, this, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Note who initiates the question of where to spend Passover. It's the disciples. They ask, Jesus, where should we spend Passover? Why? I mean, why are they the ones who initiated? I thought it was interesting. Possibly Jesus was waiting for them to see how important this event was to them. Possibly. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us that. But maybe. Perhaps they remembered the feeling that came over them when sharing Passover with Jesus the two previous years. Maybe the look of intensity. The passion. That when they shared it, it was almost like he was part of the story. We wouldn't forget that. Maybe they didn't either. And you know Jesus celebrated in a manner of pure devotion. Reflection, reflection and passion. Maybe that was the reason. But whatever the reason, they're asking Jesus about this. Where are we going to celebrate this? I love this account because he tells them, now once you go to the city, man's going to meet you carrying a pitcher of water, follow him. It seems all, it's tempting to read this last week of passion and say everything was out of Jesus' control. I mean, they were going to apprehend him they were going to get him to the cross, and he was going to be crucified. And there's even some um, secular teachers, when they look back at the historical accounts of Jesus, that just say he wasn't in control of anything. He kind of got going and as a part of, of a plan, a conspiracy that led him to Calvary. But you look at this account, who's in complete control? Jesus. He says, tell you what, you're, you're going to go walking, and, and at the same time you're walking in, Guess what's going to happen? There's this guy who's going to meet you. Why? What are the odds? What are the odds of that? That somebody would walk at the same exact time that the disciples, those two disciples were there. Amazing. Clearly, Jesus has complete control of this. Now, verse 15 and 16, we're back to this original Passover feast. It consisted of a roasted lamb, unleavened bread, and a dish of bitter herbs. And if you want really good insight, into these feasts and how they point to Jesus Christ, you need to come Thursday night. You'll get insight maybe you've never got before at the Seder meal. It's rich, the symbolism of the Old Testament and the Passover feast and how it pointed to Christ. So we're not going to talk about that there right now, but you're going to want to come Thursday night. In verse 22, Jesus uses something that in that particular day was quite common, bread, and wine, it's something that was part of every meal. He didn't, it wasn't anything unusual to them. And they were common items, used at practically every meal. But Jesus gave them a wonderful meaning. He said, this is my body, and this is my blood. Now, he didn't transform either the bread or the wine, but he certainly gave a new meaning to them. And he says to them, first of all, take. Words, you got a choice in this thing. It's not going to be forced upon you. Take it. 
and eat. You need to appropriate that what you take. Take and eat. And the idea of eat, when you think about it, we think about eating, we think in terms of what? We have to eat, right? We need the sustenance. We, we need uh, all that the eating and the food gives us to sustain us. And certainly that's true in this take and eat. Because without it, there's no salvation. Invitation is given, yet the significance of what's going on, Jesus certainly references here. And he says something really great in here. It says, when he had taken a cup of given thanks, he gave it to them, and, and they all drank from it. Judas? Hmm. Maybe. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. I'm grateful for that word, many. I mean, we wouldn't have any hope if Jesus said, this is just poured out for you guys. I came for just you 12. It's just a an in thing. It's just us. But no. I, there's a song, I think it's uh, 10th Avenue Prophets. Um, Jay probably can testify. It's a newer song. It says, Come to the Table. What a phenomenal song. I mean, the song talks about no matter where you're at in your life, no matter broken or whatever else, there's a place at the table. That you're invited. Because his blood's been poured out for the many. But as we read the account, we read some more insight into this. Jesus prepared all of us how to live on earth as we look at this. He tells us who we are, deeply loved by God. What our story is. We're part of Christ's story of redemption. What our values should be as we look at this woman pouring out an extravagant love with a pure devotion to Christ and that he claims us as his own. This is a remarkable account of what happened on that Wednesday. But as we continue to read, there's some more things we learn in verse 26 through 31. After they celebrated this Passover, verse 26 says, After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that this very night before a rooster crows, twice you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying this, same thing. It's, we think in terms of Peter denying Christ, but all these disciples are in on us. I'm not... <laughs> We're not denying you. That's not going to happen. Which really brings us to this third group, this third person in case of Peter. You see, this woman was in the company of Jesus. She was just loving and adoring and worshiping. You have Judas in the company of Jesus, but lost. And as I look at this third group, we probably can relate to this third group maybe a little better. They're in the company of Jesus, but they're limping. What happens when you limp? You make progress maybe? It's not as easy? 
There's a reason you're limping. Something's caused it. And there's a reason they're limping. Something's caused it. As I read verse 26, though, I, I smiled. We don't often think of Jesus singing. But he did. He's one of the ones singing. I couldn't help but think Jesus sang with just his voice. <laughs> no way. He lifted his whole heart in praise and probably sang three psalms known as the Hillel, Psalm 116 through 118, perhaps. But it's remarkable, I thought, that Jesus could sing on this night, and it's probably even into Thursday now, which would make it the day before his crucifixion. So what do you find the Savior doing the day before his crucifixion? Singing. We don't see that one coming. That's not something we would consider on his agenda for that day, but he was singing. In verse 27, Jesus relates these verses to Zechariah, and to be honest, I don't think if Jesus had even pointed this out, we would even recognize it, maybe as prophecy. One could read them, probably, and not see them as prophecy, but Jesus tells us they are. And what he is prophesying is that at his arrest, they, the disciples, will scatter. In verse 28, but after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. This is the fifth time Jesus has predicted his resurrection. Now you would think if you're a follower of Jesus, once, twice, maybe you missed it. Three times, ah, you should have started to pick it up. Fourth time, certainly, wow, Jesus has referenced this a lot of times, raised from the dead, what? Fifth time, Come on, guys. Fifth time he's mentioned this. And yet, as these days ahead, we're going to find out just how quickly they forgot it and how they were caught up in the events of what was going on. But Peter is quite arrogant here in presuming that Jesus is wrong. He's saying Jesus is wrong. Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Jesus, you're sitting here quoting prophecy, telling me we're going to fall away. You're wrong. You're wrong. I'm not. That's pretty arrogant <laughs> when you're telling the Savior of the world he's wrong. You got that one wrong, Jesus. I'm not going to fail. That egotism. That could never happen to me. You ever say that? That could never happen. I could never do something like that. And soon you do, and you're limping. Your walk is hindered. It's not as smooth as it once was. That's Peter. He's limping. All the disciples join in, verse 31. The problem is their pledge of loyalty is premature and it swells with vanity. Their lip service is loud until they realize a cross is involved. You see, they're in the company of Jesus. They believe, no doubt about that, they believe, but they're limping. In their faith. They're struggling to follow Jesus on his terms because there will be a cross involved. And yet we see Jesus, even in this struggle, preparing Peter and us to a reality that the followers of Christ are to take up a cross and to put to death selfish ambition and self-centered purposes. You see, surrender is required. Surrender is required to his plan on his terms. So often we can have competing agendas. 
Maybe you're in the company of Jesus, but you're limping and you're struggling. Trying to follow Jesus, but it's on your terms. That could be you today. There's a game show some years ago called Identity. And, and the game show was unique. I kind of I liked it because several persons from various occupations would line up. Of course, they wouldn't dress like their occupation. And they would line up, and the contestant had to guess which one did what. Okay? So it'd be like Jerry standing up as an electrician, and these persons didn't know Jerry, and, 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 or Gary. And then there's others who would stand up, and uh, the people would say, I look at Gary and say, oh, man, he's a doctor. He's the doctor. There's no doubt. And they look at this other one and say, well, well, well she might, she's the electrician. And so they would try to guess the occupation. They'd try to guess the identity. And, um, and I was miserable at it because they would kind of duke you out by the way they dressed, okay? I figured that one out. Um, but you had to guess their identity. And, and, and it was an interesting show. And I'd like to ask you this morning, what's your identity? You have three choices in this text. Mary, in the company of Jesus, and pure devotion. One of pure worship. Judas, in the company of Jesus, but lost. And Peter and the disciples, in the company of Jesus, but limping. What's your identity? Let's pray. Lord, I'm amazed at the relevance of these events that happened on Wednesday and Thursday of Holy Week, of Passion Week. We look back, God, and even this morning realize the relevance there are today. We can't help but see some of us in this account. And Lord, right now, my thoughts go to those maybe sitting in this room right now. I'm grateful they're here. And as they reflect right now and look within and are honest with themselves, they know they would never made a decision to trust you as Savior of their life. Right now, Lord, I affirm that there's some courageous souls here who are admitting to themselves and you that they're lost. If that's you, I want to invite you this moment to make a decision to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. No small thing. A decision that has eternal consequences. We sang earlier that God is holy. And the gospel starts with that affirmation, with that truth that God is completely holy. Never to be tainted by sin in his presence. Yet he loves you. So much he sent his son to die for you. Bible says to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
Another author in the Bible says, I write this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He will not come into judgment. If that's you this morning and you believe Jesus Christ is the Savior, you confess your need for him, to come into relationship with God. You can do that in prayer. Might this be your prayer? Dear Jesus, I recognize you are holy and that I am sinful. I now trust you as Savior of my life. Please save me. Redeem me. I call upon your name to do that. And by the promise of the scriptures, that if I call upon you, Jesus, to save me, you promise you will. And so I do. I ask it in Jesus' name. And Lord, I got to believe that for those who have trusted you and are sitting here and find ourselves limping, struggling through this Christian life and we confess we've had agendas that compete with yours and we confess we haven't been like this woman. Our devotion hasn't been pure. We've been measured in the way we follow you, not extravagant in our love towards you. We ask God that you would create and cultivate in us a heart that longs for you above all, that yields to your leading no matter where it would go, So Lord, help us adore you and love you with an ever-increasing devotion to the glory of your name. It's in your name we pray. Amen.